people-pleasing, perfectionism, fear of failure, overcommitment, distraction, procrastination, the quick fix, worry. My name is Leah, and I am in recovery from all of these things. I figured I'd just go ahead and prick that image that you may have of me from uh, Dave's introduction of me right from the get-go. Well, Lent is a time uh, in the church calendar that we journey on the road to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. And it's an opportune time to ask God what in us needs to die so that new life can come. So for me, I figured I would start with some, one of the things that I just listed. But I wasn't really sure which of the, of the things was the perfect thing to give up. So I kind of put off making a decision about what thing to put off. And then I kind of felt like a failure because Lent started and I hadn't given anything up. But then a friend shared with me a resource that guides you to give up 40 things to give up for Lent, and I thought that is exactly the thing that I need to do for Lent. Overcommitment. <laughs> so 40 things to give up for Lent. Yes, this is real. Um, you'll recognize some of the things I just said. Fear of failure, your comfort zone, feelings of unworthiness, impatience, retirement, people-pleasing, you know, just the normal run-of-the-mill things to give up for Lent. Well, before you think I'm some kind of saint, I must confess to you that I've failed on about a daily basis, and I'm beginning to wonder if that's the point. I came across one blogger who has a blog post entitled, Why Failing at Lent May Be Succeeding at Lent. She writes this, I can't seem to follow through in giving something up for Lent, which makes me want to just give up Lent which makes me question who I am following, which may precisely be the point of Lent. Some of you likely recognize the inspiration of my introduction just now from AA or other recovery programs like it. Uh, the step one of the 12-step program book begins this way. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. But upon entering AA, we perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. Some of the earliest memories that I have being in a church building was in AA meetings. My mom is a recovering alcoholic and was bravely pursuing recovery when I was a child. And so I have these memories of playing on the wood floor of old New England church parishes where the meetings were held. We didn't really grow up going to regular church all that much. So what I came to associate with church was a place where adults spoke out loud about the things that they struggled with most. It didn't meet on Sundays, but it sure felt like what church was supposed to be. I didn't come to regularly attend church until uh, my mid-high school years um, at a church on the South Shore similar to Grace Chapel. 
And that opened me up to this whole world of uh, Jesus people that really changed the trajectory and course of my life. I found my way to grace, as Dave mentioned, about 10 years ago, as I was, much to my surprise, studying Christian ministry and Bible as an undergraduate student at Gordon. I found my way to serving uh, in, in the high school ministry before I even made my way into a service here. And a few years after that, I found myself on staff here as I was pursuing a master's in theology in seminary. And just under two years ago, I came on staff uh, full-time as the director of the high school ministry. So this place has been the location of a lot of growth for me over the years. And these last two years in particular have probably contained some of the toughest days of my life. As my people-pleasing, perfectionist, uh, tendency to perform self has been confronted on a near daily basis and it has hurt it has been painful and it's made me question who i am following and by what strength i am doing all of this because now i'm learning firsthand that on my own i am powerless and that's the journey that i think we all need to make and the journey that I'd like to share with you this morning as we look at the next chapter of John in our series. So we are in the middle of our At the Table series where we've been looking at what's been called the Farewell Discourse, which is some of the final conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he is arrested and killed. I imagine this to be uh, precious moments for them as everything is about to change in really just a matter of hours. John, uh, the gospel writer, devotes five whole chapters, which is about 25% of his entire book, to documenting this conversation. I have to think this, he knew that this was an important conversation that later followers of Jesus, to re, for them to read. And we've already discovered some really important lessons as we've looked through the pages of John. In the past week, we've learned that uh, at the table, we learn to love one another as Christ loves us with all our flaws and failures. And we learn to serve each other, not just out of loyalty, but out of love. And last week we learned that we find our true home with God and with each other. Well, this morning we turn to what may be a very familiar passage to many of us, but I encourage us to not mistake familiarity with understanding. So let's listen to the words of Jesus with fresh ears this morning. And I'd like to offer uh, three observations about the spiritual journey and consider how we might experience more of that during this Lenten season. So let's turn to John uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So the first truth we discover here is that pruning is essential to the health of the branch. The vine is an old and sacred image in Judaism. And vineyards are a part of common life in ancient Mediterranean they were everywhere, and practices related to viticulture would have been familiar and known to the, to the hearers of these passages. 
they would think of planting good stock and tending to the vines and protecting the vineyards and harvesting the grapes and uh, pressing them and making them into wine. And that's one of the things I love about scripture. All throughout scripture, we see the use of everyday images and everyday scenes in life being opportunity to consider a deeper truth that God has to teach us. And that's precisely what's going on here. So the imagery of vineyard, of the vineyard, would have conjured up a host of truths about the function of vines and branches and the work of the good gardener and how wine is made and all of the rest of it. But I think there's also a deeper truth and comparison that Jesus is making here as well. Throughout the Old Testament, the vine represents Israel, which, as we know, are the people that God kind of set apart uh, to be, to receive blessing and to be a blessing to the people around them. You might think of uh, the spies coming back from scouting out the promised land, and they come back holding these big succulent bushels of grapes, And they say, this is what is there. This is what we found. This is the fruit that God meant for them to enjoy. And this is also the fruit that God intended for them to bear. And as we look throughout the pages of the Old Testament, of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel and Psalms, we see this imagery being repeated over and over again. But one of the other things we find is that these pages bear witness to a vine that is not producing fruit, a fruitless Israel, and they're producing wild and sour grapes. And so when Jesus says that he is the true vine, he is standing in direct contrast to this. I am the true vine, he says, true, genuine, enduring, the unique source of life and fruitfulness. It's no longer about ethnic identity. It's no longer about rituals and laws. Jesus is the one who unites and imparts life to all. And we learn here that the father is the gardener. He's the one tending to the vine. One commentator describes it this way. God is a passionately engaged vine grower, selecting good stock, bringing it to a chosen vineyard, learning the ground for it, defending it from plunderers, disappointed in its barrenness, pruning it, addressing it, appealing to it. It's the gardener who tends the vine from beginning to end. It's the gardener who has a vision for the vine and what the vine is to become and what the vine is to do. Well, I don't know if you are someone who has a green thumb, uh, but gardening for me is one of those skills that I am nearly uh, completely incompetent in. Um, I tried buying those succulent plants, you know, that apparently you don't really have to water that much. I thought, like, this is the plant for me. So I kind of took the, like, not watering thing a little bit too far, uh, and it shriveled and died in a matter of short time. So I adjusted my technique and ended up kind of overcompensating and uh, completely flooded it with water, thinking that I would keep it alive. It didn't stay alive. It rotted out and died again. So while I struggle in the techniques of gardening, my mom actually does this for a living. Wouldn't you have it? I remember watching my mom in the garden when I was young, meticulously tending to uh, all the different kinds of species of plants that we had in our marshside home. And I have specific memories of watching her pruning rose bushes. 
And I, I, uh, I was always a bit startled by the swiftness and instinctual fluid maneuvers that I would see of the pruning shears cutting away. And I would watch what seemed like perfectly good roses fall to the ground to be gathered up for compost. Though my mom explained to me then why she performed what seemed to be a rather traumatic process, I don't think I really understood uh, the idea behind pruning until a little bit later in life. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, and apparently Green Thumb himself, describes it this way. A rose bush left to itself will get straggly and tangled and grow in on itself. It will produce quite a lot of not-so-good roses rather than a smaller number of splendid ones. It needs help to grow in the right directions and to the right ends. So you prune it to stop wasting its energy and being unproductive. You cut out particularly the parts of the plant that are growing inward and getting tangled up. You encourage the shoots that are growing outwards toward the light. You prune the, the rose, in other words, to help it be its true self. And so it is with vines. And so it is with people. We have a tendency to waste our energy on things that are not good for us. To get distracted from who we really are and what we're me meant to do. To turn inward and to get all tangled up inside. And so the pruner comes along and clips away the things that the vine may think it needs, but it doesn't need. And the, and the unskilled observer might consider it to be a waste to watch what's being cut away, fallen down, and put into the compost pile. But the gardener has grander plans for this vine. Uh, here's a picture of a vineyard before it's pruned. During the winter months, uh, the vine has a tendency to, to kind of grow out of control. So each year, the vine must be pruned to kind of focus uh, the growth of the vine in such a way that it will produce the most and best fruit. Because a vine only has so much sap energy that it can give. So it's the careful work of the gardener to determine which of the branches is the strongest and which of the branches is most connected to the vine. Here's a picture of the vine after it's pruned. You can see that only, only a few areas of focused growth remain. Everything else is cut away. In verse 3, we learn that this process has already begun with the disciples. Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. They are already beginning to be pruned or cleaned, similar wording is being used here, by what they've heard and witnessed by, from Jesus. That process has continued with the words that Jesus is speaking to them that very night. It's continuing by Jesus getting down on his knees and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And it's been happening all these three years of Jesus' ministry as they've seen him perform miracles and tend to people and then as they've heard the things that Jesus has taught. And it began the moment that Jesus Jesus called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. It was then that they began laying down their own ambitions and their own goals to follow Jesus. <clears throat> and we know that uh, even more pruning 
is on the horizon, not too, not too far from this very conversation. And I think these words are intended to prepare the disciples for what's to come. And I think similarly, these words prepare us for what is to come as well. To be in the hands of our good gardener is to lay down some of our own aspirations and goals, our own striving, the way that we think life should go. Pruning is essential to our health. But that's not all. Let's continue reading in verse 4. Jesus says, Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the second truth we learn here is that the vine gives life to the branch. Remain in me, the true vine, Jesus says. This idea of remain, in other translations, it uses the word abide, which has roots in the word abode, which we may know means to make a home in. So Jesus is saying here literally, make your home in me. Remain in me. To be connected to the vine means that we have the very life of Jesus pulsing through us. No branch has life in itself. It's utterly dependent on the vine for fruit and for life. I must say that I find myself often not really liking being a branch all that much. I would prefer to be the vine. I personally would prefer control. And I'm not really all that comfortable with being dependent. I wonder if you felt that way. I deeply resonate with the words of one author who says, I'd prefer to be the director of my own life and hand everyone else their scripts I've written for them. <laughs> yeah, hit a little bit too close to home for me. But Jesus is saying here, apart from me, you can do nothing. Have you experienced the futility of trying to be the director of your own life? The beautiful thing is that dependence on the vine isn't about handing over the director role to God and having him hand back to us the script he has for us for our, for our life. Because I don't think God is about control. The relationship between the vine and the branch is an intimate living one. Their veins, their parts are intermingled. And so it is with us and God. This is about intimacy. The meaning of intimacy is close familiarity or friendship. It connotes affection, warmth, love, friendship, let your hair down kind of closeness. This is the with God life. When we receive life from knowing and being known intimately by God. And control is the furthest thing from intimacy. And the point is fruit. I understand from horticulturalists that a vine needs about three years before it's even useful at all to bear fruit. And so for three years, it goes through this process of being allowed to grow and trimmed back and growing some more and trimmed back and on and on for three years. Without that process, it's completely useless to bear fruit. And from there, it's another six years before uh, it becomes, it's, it's ready to be a good wine, ready to be endured. So we're talking nine years for one good bottle of wine. 
spiritual growth takes time. Is there something in your life that you are trying to speed up? In moments of stress, scarcity, trials, fears, do you trust the gardener? The pruning, the fruit, that's up to God. We receive the invitation to to remain, to dwell in and with God. Let's look at these uh, last few verses here. Starting in verse 6. If you remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I think the third truth that we learn here is that fruitfulness is a result of remaining in the vine. Every good farmer knows how to read the health of a plant. And so the living branches are trimmed and pruned back so that they would produce even more growth. And dead branches, the ones that don't have the life of the vine coursing through their veins. The ones that are distracting the energy needed for optimal growth in the, in the vine and the branch are removed. And I wonder if there are aspects in our own life that are getting in the way of our own growth, keeping us from becoming the fruitful branches that God intended us to be. There are distractions and drains on our energy, and they need to go. I recently started reading a a newly released book uh, called Scary Close, Dropping the Act and Finding True Intimacy uh, by popular Christian writer Donald Miller. Miller writes out of the realization of being unable to experience intimacy because he was too busy trying to impress people. I decided to read it to get inside the head of someone who may struggle with such a thing because that certainly is not something that I struggle with. (laughs) Uh, And he describes the experience of going to this place called Onsite, which is a therapeutic retreat center that does about nine months of therapy in one week. And so what happens is when upon arrival, you hand in your cell phone. During your time there, you don't share what your last name is, what you do for a living, what your GPA is, what school you went to. And so stripped down of all of the previous things that Miller realized that he used uh, to impress people, He found himself just finding something else to impress them with, which was his humor. And so during a breakthrough conversation, the director of the program, Bill, calls him out on this as he asks him the poignant question, where did you get your entertainer gene from? Don couldn't believe how quickly he was pegged. And so Bill proceeds to pull out a napkin, and he draws a circle. And inside the circle, he writes the word self. And he says that every person God makes is just a self. They love life. They love themselves. They're enamored by the world around them. Maybe you think of a baby or a puppy. And then he goes on to draw a second circle around the first circle. And inside that circle, he writes the word shame. And he says at some point, in life, whether true or not, we realize that we don't belong. And we have this feeling that there's something wrong with us. If people knew this, they wouldn't accept me, we say. 
Then he proceeded to draw a third circle around the other two circles. And inside that circle, he writes the word personality. We cover up the shame with something we figure out will give us acceptance. For Miller, he learned it was his humor and intelligence. If he could be funny or if he could be smart, then he had a reason to be in the room. So we become a self covered in shame, hiding behind an act. And we experience healing, he learns, only when someone can get through to the self. Intimacy, then, is found in breaking through the layers and uncovering that inner self. Because it's the self that gives and receives love. As Miller puts it, the outer rings are just theater. I wonder how much shame gets in the way of our remaining in God or the personas that we put on, that we're too busy trying to make sure that they come to fruition. They're preventing us from giving and receiving love. And it's these outer rings that I think the gardener wants to prune back, cut away, and throw into the fire. The shame, the personas, the masks, the idols, the coping mechanisms, the distractions, and it's this inner ring, the true self that he wants to tend to and nurture and prune back so that we might flourish and be fruitful. And so here, as we gather around this table with Jesus during his final hours with his disciples, we learn that at the table, we become our true self free to give and receive love. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to pursue things that aren't giving us life. We haven't really addressed head-on what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about fruit. If you go on to read the rest of the chapter, it's clear that Jesus is talking about one main thing that we've already kind of alluded to, love. And so fruitfulness is found in the giving and receiving of love as a result of remaining in the vine. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, really can all be boiled down to love. And that's what we find in the later verses in verse 12 of this chapter. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. So the question for us this morning is how do we be that kind of person? How do we live this kind of life? How do we remain in the vine? Remain in Jesus. Three things uh, come to mind for me. And the first is prayer. And that's exactly what we hear in verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Think about the moments that you are driven to God in prayer, petitioning, pleading maybe for something or on behalf of someone, perhaps uncomfortably aware of your own neediness. That's a reminder of our dependence. And I think the Father has a way of making us dependent on Jesus through prayer. The second thing is what I'm calling patterning. How are we patterning our lives in such a way that continually connects us to the source of life, 
that leads to a fruit-bearing life. Remember, the kind of life, uh, the kind of fruit that Jesus has in mind here is a relational one. It's all about how we give and receive love. What are the ways that we're trying to go it alone? Uh, Several people have recently recommended to me a book uh, with the title, God in My Everything, How an Ancient Rhythm Helps Busy People Enjoy God by Ken Shigematsu. And he proposes the image of a trellis as a way to think about how we pattern our life. If you think about what a trellis does for a vine, it helps a vine that kind of has a mind of its own to grow in a way that is upwards, in a way that helps it to err and develop the fruit that it was intended to bear. Even vines out in the wild will find just about anything to use as a trellis. So funnily enough, structure is instinctual to the life of a vine. And I think structure is instinctual for us as well, though we might resist it. The patterns we establish in our life can help us remain in the source of true life. Another common term for this is maybe a rule of life. Maybe you've heard that term before. Notice at the base of this trellis, uh, which is what Ken terms root practices, fruit practices. He has three here. He has Sabbath, the practice of Sabbath, finding oasis and rest for body and soul. Prayer, deepening our friendship with God. And sacred reading, returning to God's scriptures and teachings on a regular basis. These are act as foundations to all the rest of our lives, all the rest of the day-to-day interactions. These act as foundations for us. I encourage you to check out this book uh, as a resource. It's a great one. But whatever you use or whatever you want to call it, what are the patterns that you have in place to daily connect you to the source of life? And the third thing is pruning. We need to let things in us that don't contribute to us becoming our true selves be pruned back, be thrown out, be burned up. The difference, I think, between us and a real vine is that a vine doesn't really have a choice in its pruning. It's kind of at the will of the one with the pruning shears. Surely, I think God prunes in us what God will prune, uh, regardless of our will. But I just wonder how much energy do we waste fighting with the good gardener? How much more painful do we make the the growth process by trying to go at it alone? What in your life is stunting fruit growth that might be causing some of your relationships to suffer? For me, or for me, some of the ways that I seek to perform uh, instead of experiencing intimacy um, is my outer layer is intelligence and compassion. I need to be known as someone who is smart and I need to be known as someone who is understanding and loved. And so what happens all too often is that interactions with people become opportunity for me to prove these to be true. And can I tell you that it's exhausting? Because all too often, I find myself walking away from interactions with people, wondering if they've seen through my act. How much energy am I wasting making sure the persona that I want to project is coming true? when I'm not really connected to the source of life, those become dead branches. 
because it's hard to love someone when you're trying to perform for them. So the temptation then, I think, is to isolate. But here's something I've learned, is that community is where we are pruned. You know, it's, it's hard to do community in a room filled with people. But are there people in your life that let you see you for you? It's hard to experience true intimacy in, in an auditorium uh, like this. But what are ways that you are helping to pioneer a culture of authenticity and vulnerability? Where we practice being our true self. Can I give you permission and encourage you um, this week to be open uh, to this kind of vulnerability, perhaps in your table groups or your life community groups or whatever kind of group of friends or family that you find yourself in? Let's be a part of building a culture that relies and abides in the gospel instead of our own striving. One way I think the church has been doing this for centuries is through the practice of prayer and confession. So in a moment, I want to give us an opportunity to do that. Because I think the moments that we declare our neediness, our weakness, the moments we stop striving, drop the act, and step off the stage, is when we become our true self, free to give and receive love. And that, my friends, is the gospel. So I want to give us a few moments here uh, to just silently reflect in God, with God, and in God. So I encourage you, allow yourself to settle for a moment. Close your eyes or focus your gaze on something that will help you be still. And as you settle, is there something in your life that the good gardener wants to prune back? Maybe things that are making you too busy or keeping you from simply enjoying life. What might God want to clear away and burn in your life? Maybe it's an old habit, an idol. a persona. And what do you need to do to make your home in Christ? Maybe it's for the first time or for the hundredth time saying, God, help. I can't, but I'm trusting you can. When we get rid of lesser things, we must replace them with better things, things that help us remain in the vine. So is there a practice, perhaps, that will allow you to return daily and continually to the source of life? A way of patterning your life, a commitment to pursue intimacy instead of impression, prioritize relationships 
over striving, telling the truth. surrendering of control. A prayer that is frequently prayed in recovery meetings is what's known as the serenity prayer. And I, I, I want, as we kind of close our time here, uh, to pray this prayer out loud together. And as we do that, may you sense the peace that comes with the awareness that we are daily invited to let go of control and to find our home in the living, loving God. So would you pray with me? God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Amen.